As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we now come to this which is your word. And we trust it. Because coming from you, it is thus truth. And I pray for me and for us that we would be able to listen to it, to hear it in such a way that we would, in fact, believe it. And in the believing of it, that you would be magnified and glorified. And as you're magnified and glorified in us, we pray that we could live in such a way that would reflect you. That would show that we are in your image to show that you are great and all-sufficient. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Luke and chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1 again. As last Sunday, I went to read verses 46 through 55. Luke chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, what we want to do during this Advent season is to take up this Mary's song, this Magnificat, this, 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 this song of her magnifying, magnifying the Lord. And we do it, of course, with an eye on Advent. We know that this season of the year has been set apart by the church for centuries to, to think about the incarnation. It isn't that we don't think about the incarnation at other times. It isn't that it isn't important to think about the incarnation at other times. But this we've set apart, set aside these Sundays before what we call Christmas Sunday and Christmas Day in order to think about the comings, first and second, of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his first coming, he came as God made flesh, as men, uh, the, the, the word made flesh, as the Apostle John puts it. Uh, and as we've said, this creed of Nicaea is one in which those who gathered together at that council sought to think through this, this incarnation. And it's a difficult thing to express. How does one express it? Obviously, John does it rightly as he lays out the word become flesh and dwelling, tenting, tabernacking, living among us. Um, we have it here and we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds. It is eternally, if you will, begotten of the Father. He has the same characteristics of the Father in the sense of being eternal, but yet being His Son, how does one express that? Well, with this language in the creed, begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, that is not created, being one substance with the Father. That flowed from that passage in John chapter 1. 
And also this one in Philippians in chapter 2 where the apostle writes of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not of his deity, but his glory, if you will, in that sense, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How do we express this? This incarnation. And so we see these, these biblical ways and the ways then that the church has taken in this council to, to try to express it. But that's what we're thinking about during this time of, of Advent, this incarnation. And then indeed how he'll return again in glory and triumph uh, at his return. Uh, Mary, of course, had a unique vantage point on this, uh, given her particular role in it, given her particular calling, given how God blessed her to, to carry this child, Jesus, in her conceived as he was by the Holy Spirit. She knew that. She knew she hadn't been with a man. And thus, how else, she said, could this be true? And the angel said to her, well, it was the result of the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in you to bring this this child Gabriel had met with her uh, and he had told her of this one who was to come in verse 32 of chapter 1 he'll be great and he'll be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David and he'll reign over the house of Jacob uh, forever so what I want to do in the midst of this Advent season is to consider as Mary did this incarnation. Obviously, as we mentioned, uh, it was more, it was very personal to her in a, in a particular way, something we can't really enter into. Uh, but we can in, in the way that, that she would ultimately, because she was able to look beyond just what was happening to her to bear this child. Uh, but, but she knew, because of what the angel had told her, who he was and what he was to do. And, and she knew the Old Testament scripture. She knew that this very one had been prophesied to come. She knew that this very one had been foreshadowed in all that was true in ancient Israel. And so she knew that he was not only for her, but the Savior of the world. And so what I want to do is enter into that and, 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 and to, to think that through with her and from her, from the scripture. We can see the progression, really, as, as all this dawned on her. The very first, she said, how could this be? She, she knew it couldn't be because she hadn't been with a man. How can this be? And the angel said, it will be of God and nothing is impossible with God. And then, and then we saw in, in, in that understanding, as, as, that, as that sunk in her, she was able to say, all right, be it unto me according to your word. And then she comes now, to sing this great expression. And we can see in the very beginning, she said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That is to say, she uses two words, your soul and spirit, uh, to try to get at, at, at the very core of her being. She's, she's really laying out as the psalmist would when he said, bless the Lord, O my soul, 
and all that is within me. How can I express all that is within me? And she says, so my, my soul magnifies the Lord. My, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Everything that's in me, this is the very guts of my being, the very core of my being rejoices in, in, in this very fact that, that this one has indeed uh, come, this, this one. So, so as the psalmist, she says, I desire to bless uh, his holy name. And I, just, just, just by way of quick application. When I read this, I just get caught up short and said, is that true for me? Is that really true for me? That's what Sundays are for, to, to bring it back to be true for us in the sense that, yes, we, we get it, we see it. During the week, it may fade, but, but as we come to worship, uh, the, one of the purposes here is for us to say, all right, yes, okay, that is the very guts of my life. That is the very core of my being, this one who has come and he dwells, and he dwells really within me. Of course, Mary couldn't necessarily live in the midst of this song her whole life in the sense that she's singing all the day. And so we realize that, that the emotion of this may ebb and flow, but the reality of it should never. And as it's said of Mary, she treasured these things in her heart. She stored them up, and that's what we really must do. It must be a treasure to us. We must store them up so we can feed on them day in and day out. They are the very core of our being and she says that her soul magnifies the lord that is to say she wants everyone to really see this too she magnifies him. She, wants, she wants everybody to, to see him as we mentioned last Sunday, like a telescope magnifies take that which is, is is very far away but very big and we can't see it uh thus god and and enable others to see it she desires to to really to to magnify the Lord, how can I, Mary was saying, show this to others? Have you ever had anything like that where you really wanted to show them that? I, I always think of new grandmothers. Invariably, I sit by them on airplanes. I live with one of them. And, and it seems as if they really believe that if you see a picture of their grandchild then it'll make you happy and change your life. And they can do nothing other than to magnify this child. They get on that airplane thinking, how many people can I show this picture to before I get off this plane? But there's a sense in which, and the silliness of that, the sense in which Mary is saying the very same thing. You've got to see this. This will change your life. This will change everything, this one who is to come. So I've got to magnify him. I've got to show him because of who he is. He is the son of the Most High. He's the one who's been prophesied to come. He's the one who's the seed, if you will, of, of, of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He's the one who was promised through Abraham's seed. All the nations, all the families of the peoples of the world will be blessed. He's that very one. He's the one Isaiah spoke of when he says that the government would be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's that one, you see. And so, 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 so how do you not magnify? How can you not magnify him? And then she says, so much so that my soul rejoices, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. One uh, older dead commentator speaks of Mary affectionately this way. And he calls her here 
You can tell he's a Presbyterian. He calls her here the catechism girl. Because we know the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, for those of you Presbyterian types among us and others, but uh, what is the chief purpose? What is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, Mary in this expression captures all of this. My soul glorifies, magnifies God. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And you see, there isn't anything greater for a human being than to show forth and to magnify God and to glorify him. That's what it means. We were created in his image. Think about that. Created in his image. That means that we're to always be reflecting him. And there isn't anything greater than that. For a husband, you see, there shouldn't be anything greater for a husband than to reflect God to his wife. Shouldn't be anything greater for a wife than to reflect God to her husband. There shouldn't be anything greater than parents to reflect God to their children. What could make your child happier, really, ultimately? What could make your wife happier, really? Your, your husband happier, really? Your friend happier, really? Any, any person around you? Than, than, than to know that they've seen God in the midst of your expression to them, your life to them, whether it be something you've said, something you've done, in the midst of that. It can make a person happier than to know you've glorified him. You've shared, what, what better thing could you do for another person in the life of another person than to reflect God to them? And that's our chief purpose. You see, that, that, that's, a, that's what satisfies to glorify him and enjoy him. It makes us happy to do that. So, so Mary got this. Mary understood that. There's a sense in which she was this catechism uh, girl. And, 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 and we do that. We do that in the context of worship. We magnify him. Surely, as we come in and we recite together these creeds, believingly, when we do it believingly, it, it magnifies the Lord. He says, look who he is. This is really true of him. It's amazingly true of him. Listen to this. And so we gather together to magnify him. We sing. And as we sing sincerely, we, we magnify him with, with the truth of the words of the songs and and coming together. Even our coming to worship is magnifying him because he's saying he's worth this. We come because he's the very core of our lives. But it isn't just here, obviously. It's as we express this faith, as we express who he is in the world to one another, as we speak to one another, as we live in, in the context of our jobs and our vocations, even as we're working and we're doing our jobs well, we're reflecting the image of God, you see. We're magnifying him. That's what we do. We magnify him as we pray because we're saying, listen, we're dependent upon you. You're great. We're not. We need your help. We magnify his strength and his grace and his mercy and his love. Even as we pray, we confess our sins. We say, I trust you with with this in my life. I trust that sins will be forgiven and you will not condemn me, but rather forgive me. Uh, And so we magnify his grace and his mercy even as we pray, even as we make confession of our sins, you see. All of that, we're magnifying the Lord. It it informs everything about our lives. So the question then as we come, what, what did Mary know then? What did Mary know about God? What did Mary know about what was happening that caused her to be compelled to magnify him? Take a look. Here, she begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. That is, she knows that he's the Lord, the great, if you will, I am. You remember, 
that when God called Moses to go back to Egypt to bring deliverance, to save the people, to rescue them, he said, here's my name. You tell them I am has sent you meaning. I'm the one that's self-existent. I'm the one who's self-dependent. I'm the one who's self-sufficient. I'm the sovereign one. And I'm the one that's going back to rescue them, to save them. And, and so nothing can thwart me. They can really trust this. They can know that they're really going to be delivered. And that was the personal name of God to Israel, really. That was the personal name, the, the name of Lord, yes, but the name Savior, too. Because, you see, the, that was the name that he gave them at that moment in time to say, I make my covenant with you. I, I, you are my people. I'm your God. And so when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she says, that's why she could say parallel to that my spirit rejoices in God my savior I know this Lord I am he's the one who rescues he's the one who delivers he's the one who saves but isn't that an interesting expression that she uses God my savior we, we often when we're using the word savior we tie it very directly to Jesus we say Jesus our Savior. And that's right to do. As we look through the scripture, for instance, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 4, uh, Paul puts it like this, Christ Jesus, our Savior. Chapter 2 of Titus, he says, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter refers to this Savior as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's common to us. As well, it should be, obviously. It's in the scripture, obviously. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Deliverer, He's the one who's come so that we can be delivered, saved from our sin. Mary had the word Jesus available to her. The angel said, you'll call his name Jesus. She knew that. She knew that he would be the son of the Most High. She could have said Jesus, our Savior. She could have said the son of the Most High, my Savior. But she said God, my Savior. Obviously, that's true or Mary inspired by the Holy Spirit wouldn't have said it but it is true you see we can say that God is our Savior in fact that's also a New Testament uh, expression for instance in um, 1st Timothy in chapter 1 Paul writes this Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus of our our hope and then again in chapter 2 when he writes to Timothy he says this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. And he does this again as he writes to Titus, Paul does. He refers to God, our Savior. And that is true because, you see, we're really saved, we're really rescued by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, it's the Father who plans this, if you will, as we read through the Scripture. The Father who plans and he predestines, he elects. The Father does all of that. The Son then, in agreement with the Father, comes and achieves it. He executes it. He makes certain that it happens. He says, I'll get this done. And then the Holy Spirit comes and applies it to those for whom the Son had achieved it. We see this in the scripture, for instance, in, in John and in chapter 3, a great passage of Jesus coming to, to Nicodemus. We see our salvation as this work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see Father Son very clearly in John chapter 3, verse 16, where 
Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that is, God the Father, who would have a son to give. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so we we see the work of the Father here in in giving and sending his son. This was the, the plan of the Father. And the son in submission to the father goes and, and gives himself. But we also see the necessity of the work of the spirit. As this conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus began, you remember it began about how does one um, uh, uh, you know, inherit eternal life, if you will, as he comes, this Nicodemus, to, uh, to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. That which is born of flesh is flesh, born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Saved by God. Father plans, the Father sends, the Son comes and achieves, the Spirit comes and gives new life so that we can receive that which the Son has achieved and that for which the Father had sent him. Ephesians 1 is the same. So you read this great praise of the Apostle. He says, Blessed be the God and Father. Of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, that is the Father, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, that is the Father, chose us in Him, that is the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, that is before the Father. In love, He, that is the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, that is the Father, to the praise of his, that is the Father, glorious grace, which he, the Father, has blessed us in the beloved. In him, that is the Son, we have redemption through his blood, Son's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. And then in verse 11, in him, the Son, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, that is the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of his, that is the Father's will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his, that is the Father's glory. In him, the Son, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that is the Son, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Here's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his, the Father's glory. We're saved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Mary expresses that, God, my Savior. Surely that would have been the way that she would have expressed it very naturally as one who comes out of Old Testament tradition still, but, but still she knew this would be God, her Savior, And she knew that he could save because notice in verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. He's mighty, that is, he's, he's strong. She knew that he had to be mighty in order to bring this child 
within her. Who else could do that? It would take the very power of God to bring this child, to have her conceive a child without natural means. So she knew that he was mighty, but also knew that he was mighty as God her Savior. She, she knew the might that it took in order to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. She knew the miracles. She knew the plagues. She knew the Red Sea experience. She would know all of that. His might did it. And she would know too that the sin within us takes more than just information to deal with. It takes the very power of God. She would anticipate the expression of the apostle when he said that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. You see, some power of God, great power of God, his might needs to be expressed because we're powerless to break the power of sin in our lives. We're powerless. So it means the fact that we're born in sin. Jesus would ex- express it this way. John has it in John in chapter 1, speaks to us. Verse 9, I'm sorry, John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. You see, that's a very accurate but sad and distressing statement about us. Not about them, but about us. We love darkness rather than light. What can change that? When we love darkness and not light, we can't change it. We haven't, we haven't it in us to change it. That's our inclination. That's our disposition to love darkness. And he goes on to say, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. And then he says this, So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, in order for us to come to the light, in order for us to, to, to do that which is good, we, we need to have this work of this power really of God. Paul writes this as he writes to the church in Colossae in Second Corinthians in chapter 4 in verse 4 he says in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see that's the condition of human beings the, our minds are blinded we, we can't see it it takes the very power of God to enable us to see this power of the Holy Spirit this spirit that brings new life if you will who gives us new birth Paul goes on to say this for what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This expression, let light shine out of darkness, is an expression of creation, really. God spoke light, and there was light. He says, that's the kind of thing that has to happen to us, you see. And if you're a believer in Jesus, that means that did happen. And so Mary is saying, what what we need, if God is to be 
our Savior, the Lord who delivers us. And he needs to be strong because we're powerless against this. He needs to come in strength and defeat all of this sin for us because, because we really can't. In the, in the passage that I read this morning during our, our time of, of, of singing and, and praying from Ephesians and, and chapter 2, this great expression after we, we read these, these, these verses in, in, in the opening chapter that we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind that we were dead you see we're not just a bit sick not just fainted away but actually dead unresponsive we couldn't respond to this which is true, so it's going to do that. And Mary said, oh, he has to be the mighty one. He has to have power in order to do this, you see, because we're powerless. Yesterday, um, at the funeral of the little Ezra shepherd, this little baby, he made note of the fact that we are powerless. And so Jesus spoke of children, and he said, if you're going to, Enter the kingdom, it has to be like that. Recognizing your powerlessness and the might of God. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this coming into the kingdom, this power of God that breaks sin in our lives humbles us sin tells us we can the spirit of God tells us we haven't and we won't and we don't want to and to change that you see requires a power of God so that we no longer love darkness but rather desire to come to the light And Mary says, oh, this mighty one can save us because he is, in fact, mighty. And so he breaks the power of sin and death in our lives. And by way of his cross. And then verse 50. I'm sorry, the end of verse 49. And she says, and holy in his name is his name. So he's mighty and he's holy. And so in his holiness, we see that he, that he, 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 he... moves his power against sin. He moves his power against all that's unholy. He moves his power against all that is, is evil. And taking those two things together, together isn't necessarily comforting that he's mighty and, 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 and holy. Because it could mean that that means he'll destroy us because he's mighty, he can, and he's holy, and he comes against that which is evil. And so the question is, is he going to come against the sin for us to help us or against us. Well, then this next expression, verse 50, she writes, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He said, listen, this is a response. This child within me is a response of the mercy of God. Yes, his power, his holiness, but his mercy. See, mercy is one of the most astounding They're all astounding, but astounding attributes of God. 
See, see, grace is this. Grace is God's love towards guilty sinners who deserve his wrath. So, so grace is loving the undeserving and the ill-deserving. That's what grace is. It, it looks upon us and says, we're guilty. And God says, but I will love you. And he loves us in sending Jesus and in sending his spirit to us. He, he loves us in that way to save but, but, but mercy and, and grace go together because, you see, mercy has this nuance. Mercy is God's love that is shown to those who are in misery because of their sin. See, see mercy, compassion, looks upon another who's suffering and, 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 and empathizes, sympathizes with that suffering in such a way that says, I cannot not act. You, we, have expressed mercy towards people in various ways. And I dare say you're most merciful to people who've suffered in ways that you've suffered. And if you've suffered in a particular way, it, 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 it changes you and warms your heart. And when someone else is suffering in that particular way from which you've suffered, you, you empathize with them and, and, and you are compelled to help them. And what's amazing about the mercy of God, you see, is that he looks on our misery, but it's misery that's our fault. And it's not only misery that it's our fault, we're miserable in our sin because we've actually rejected him. This is where mercy and grace go together. We've actually done the opposite of what he's commanded us to do. We've actually lived the opposite of what he's told us to live. And then we find ourselves in misery. And he could easily say, well, you know, you've made your bed, now lie in it. This is your fault. You've rebelled against me. But in his grace, he shows love to us who deserve his, his wrath, really. And in his mercy, he's actually, we can understand this word, he's actually moved Or the misery of our circumstances to come and to help us. And she says, this is the very heart of God. He's merciful. She would know that because she would remember back to the Exodus again. And she would remember that when God first spoke to Moses to tell him to go back to be the one who would deliver the people, he said, I've heard their cries. I've seen their suffering. And I'm sending you. That's why... David, King David, when he sinned grievously, appealed to the mercy of God. Be merciful to me. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He knew the very heart of God. And Mary knows the very heart of God. And she says, he's mighty, he's holy, and he's merciful. So he uses might and his holiness, his power against sin to deliver us, to save us. Knowing that, she said, I've got to do everything I can to magnify him. I've got to do everything I can so that all will see that this is true. We know that Jesus is the manifestation of the mercy of God. He is our high priest 
as the author of Hebrews puts it. He is the one who has suffered as we yet without sin. He is the one who knows our frame. He is the one who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He is the one then who rules in mercy and grace so that in our times of need we can come to him in confidence knowing that we will see, receive mercy and grace for our time of need. And he lays it out on the night that he was betrayed to his disciples by taking bread. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after giving thanks, he gave this too to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. It was Martin Luther who said, Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. It's more than that because before it can be personal, Subjective, it needs to be objective. Luther knew that Christ had come. Luther knew that Christ had lived and died. He knew that he had risen. He knew that he had ascended. He knew that he rules and reigns. He knew that Christ would return. What he meant when he said that Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns is who is the you? This is my body given for you. Do you know that you are the you? Do you say given for me? Do you know that? Cup of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Whose Sins. Whose forgiveness? You say, my sins. My forgiveness. In a sense that Mary was kind of in that moment, that brief capsule in her life, in, in some sense sucking in all that had, had, had been true and she had learned from the Old Testament scriptures and knew from her heritage concerning God and yet somehow uh, putting all of that forward, she said, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, this one, you see who is Savior, this one who is Lord, this one who is holy, this one who is mighty, this one who is merciful, this one who is mine. That's a question for each of us, obviously, most especially Every day, but as we come into this Christmas season, uh, do we really get it? Do we really understand? Do we really celebrate it? Do, is this is this the 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 magnifying desire 
of, of our lives to magnify the Lord? Is this the desire of our lives to magnify him? Do we rejoice in him? Do we really get it? And we only really get it when it's really mine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, enable us each in this brief moment to examine our own hearts' lives. That we really get it. That God is our Savior. Father, we know in the mystery of salvation that you are the Sovereign one over all things, thus the one who plans and predestines and elects and chooses and all of that. Lord Jesus, we know that we're powerless. Thus you must come and break the power of sin and death. And that you have by way your life, your death, and your resurrection. And Holy Spirit, we know being powerless over our whole lives that you must come and work within us to change us. Because we know that if we do believe it's because you've done that work in us to enable us to see the work of Christ and believe. So here we are. I pray now, God, that you would set aside this bread and this juice in such a way that in it we would know the very presence of Jesus. Around this table we would come to receive from him. And in our coming would be a declaration that God, you are our, very personally, my Savior, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, so we pray that you would now set aside this bread and this juice in such a way that it would magnify our Lord Jesus with a mind of faith we would see him and our faith would be strengthened and we would be encouraged to live. Father, impress this upon us so much we would desire to magnify you and always rejoice. In this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.